welcome to you all, and a particularly warm welcome to Alicia Salings and Matthew Francis. They both have acclaimed collections to their names. They both teach. They both have a belief in the importance of form, uh, of which we will no doubt hear more this morning. Uh, Matthew's going to go first, Alicia's going to go second. If there is a, a little time at the end, there will be questions. Thank you very much, Peter, and uh, thank you all. Um, I'm going to be reading just from one book today, which is my new book, The Mabinogi, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, I live in Wales. I live, in, I live on the uh, coast of, of West Wales, and... Um, one day, uh, not, not so long ago, I went to my publisher, Matthew Hollis of Faber and Faber, and said, I am stuck. Uh, I can't think of anything to write. Uh, what should I do? And he said, um, well, you live in Wales. Right, do a version of the Mabinogion. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I said, it is not as simple as that. You don't understand the politics. I, I'm, an, I'm an Englishman living in, in Wales, and this is, this is sacred ground for, for the Welsh. Um, also, lots of people have done the Mabinogion in various forms. Um, most recently, there have been a series of novellas published by Seren Books um, called um, uh, New Stories from the Mabinogion. Um, and, you know, what, what, can I, what can I, both an Englishman and, and, and a poet, do in, 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 in this respect? And uh, I, went, I went back and I reread the, the Mabinogion and, and, uh, and started to think, yes, it, I could see how this would work and it would be a different sort of thing in poetry. Um, and I've done a lot of work in the past that, that's not exactly... I don't really translate. I, tra I transpose. I change, I change things and, uh, and, and, and use um, text as a starting point for my own poetry. And I could see ways of doing that. And I could also, I could, it also seemed to make sense to me that even though I'm not Welsh-speaking, uh, I can work from, from translations, and I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not Welsh-born, nevertheless... This is, this, this, this work, the importance of this work, of the Mabinogion, uh, goes beyond, beyond Wales. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a text of, of worldwide importance, and I think I, I could contribute in, to, to spreading its reputation in that way. So this is why I, I ended up writing this. It's called the Mabinogi, not the Mabinogion. Um, and I, those of you who know anything about the original will, will know that the Mabinogi is the correct word, and Mabinogion is actually a misunderstanding, scribal error. Um, but also, um, uh, this is an adaptation only of the first four stories. The Mabinogion, as it's usually known, is 11 stories. This is an adaptation only of the first four of those stories, um, which are known and call themselves the four branches of the Mabinogi. And they are very complex stories. They are very magical. They're, they're to do with relations between the world of human beings and the sort of the, uh, and, and, and what people tend to refer to as the other world, the Celtic other world, the sort of the world of a sort of fairy kingdom, um, and they're to do with enchantments and and, uh, and there's a lot of war in them, a lot of hunting, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of very medieval themes. Um, so I've done it as a uh, as, as four long poems really. Um, those poems are broken into sections. Um, Peter said I, I'm very interested in form and and I've uses a sort of syllabic sonic form looks like that. It's kind of tapering, and it's got lots of gaps and lots of white space in it. Um, largely, to, I wanted to make it look a bit like a medieval manuscript. Um, it's also got these, these large capital letters, which look a bit like the illuminated capitals in a medieval manuscript. 
So, and it's also got marginal notes to help you to follow where you are in the story. So I'm going to read some of that now. And um, I'm going to start with the story of the character in the Mabinogi, of the Mabinogi that I find hardest to pronounce. Um, he is Puich. <laughs> and Puich is sitting on a hill in, uh, in Pembrokeshire called Gorseth Arbeth. And this hill has a magical property that if you sit on it, you will see something remarkable. And Poich, who is a prince in West Wales, is sitting on this hill with his court, and he sees a woman riding past. Um, but there's something very strange about her. It's little more than a bump in the land, a footnote in the catalogue of hills, crags, and ridges. Felt as an ache in the thighs, the hearts flip and gulp by those heavy with mutton and wine. Then a subtle sense of arrival, a breeze scurrying up to attend to you, the green swell of crown, the fields gathering below. They say, if you sit on the summit, you'll see a sight more chilling than the greys of rain, or something more brilliant than lightning's snazzy gold. From up here, everything is cloud. The grass, forest, corn, even the rocks are nuances of weather. The roads a white line through the billows. He watches with his men as a figure grows there. A horse with a lick of sunlight on its back. A horse with a nightingale armor. A horse with a splash of silk horsewoman riding. Not so much moving as sharpening. Will she ever be real? The boy he sends down finds the road silent, her back already dwindling. Now, this woman who's riding past is Hrianon, and she, she is a rather magical woman herself, and, and she has a strange sort of power over time that um, uh, no matter how slowly she, she seems to be riding, no one can catch her. She is woman and horse. She rides slower than daydreams. She is what you've forgotten, where the time went. Single-minded as the sun, she rides always one way, and the air is warmed by her passing. The man he sends after her the second day tries slowing down. She rides slower still, and the road grows between them. He gallops again. Always she dawdles away from him, till she's as small as a gnat, and his horse, gasping. She slips into yesterday, without being now. On the third day, he rides himself, on his sleekest horse, till it's yeasty with sweat. She is a brushstroke on the stillness of the facing page, illuminated in gold on a green background, and there is always a white space between them. At last, he calls out to her to stop. There's a tearing sound, the sense of a veil lifting, and they are side by side, flank to flank. He should have asked her sooner, better for the horse. They talk in time to the hoofs, saddle courtesies. So the secret of getting her, getting her to stop was just to ask her to. <laughs> and Poichl uh, and Rhiannon are going to be married. They, they, he falls in love with her. Later, he will ask himself how she knew who he was and why she chose him out of all the princes who hunt under these lumbering clouds. Now... He is watching her smile as it comes and goes, a slip of candlelight seen under a door, listening to the cluck of laughter 
that nestles deep in her throat. Hearing himself talk in the silences she leaves for him. Later, they will feast and dance and climb the long stairs. Later, he'll wonder. Today, there's wonder enough. I'll leave that story at this point and move on to the second one. <clears throat> the second branch of the Mabinogi. second branch of the Mabinogi, which is perhaps the, the, the most tragic of the, of the four, tells the story of a war between uh, Britain and Ireland. And, uh, and Britain at that time is, is united uh, under a king. Um, it's, it's, and Britain is called the Island of the Mighty. And uh, the, the king is um, Bran the Blessed, and he's a giant. And one of the things I love about the Mabinogi is, is, is how literally it takes these kind of magical themes, a giant. It actually, it actually talks about how difficult it is to be a giant um, because he's too, he's too big to fit into a house. So he's always cold and wet. This is Wales, after all. He's always cold and wet. He lives out in the weather. Um, when they, when they, the, the British come to invade Ireland in the story, Bran can't fit into a, into a ship, so he has to wade across the Irish Sea. So that's another of the things that happens. So I will, I will read to you about the experience of being a giant. He is the capital at the start of the sentence. A tree, a crow's nest, a furlong of a man. You cannot think of him all at once. Picture his scrubland of beard, his battlement teeth. Or think of the vertigo of standing there, gazing from the parapet of self he can never climb down from the wind in his ears that his friends must shout to compete with, a life lived in the weather. No house will hold him. He is closer to the birds than his family. He feels a kinship with high places. Here on the cliffs, he can watch the sea think its blue and grey thoughts. Sometimes crazed causeways appear in it, or creeping patches of dark trouble the surface. Today, there's a grainy cloud in the distance that might be a swirl of mosquitoes picking the sun to pieces with their bits of wings. But whiter, more bosomy than that, a flotilla of seagulls, saltwater swans, more complicated than that. It's something human. What it is is, is some ships, and they've come from Ireland, and uh, the, um, they're, they're led by the king of Ireland, Mytholoch, who is there to... Um, pay court to Bran's sister, Bramwyn, uh, wants want her to be his wife and go to, go to live in Ireland with him. So this is obviously, a, it's a diplomatic mission. The wind fluttering through a volume of blank pages, 13 ships approaching from the smudgy west, where there is known to be an island dangerously like this one, but darker, vaguer. Their jauntiness disturbs him, those puffs of cloth and the banners squiggling above them unreadable signatures in red, green, and gold. They've come as close as they can now and are busy with a task he can't see or hear till the smooth blue breaks into a rash of black boats. So the messengers are sent ashore and, uh, and, and they, they, they call up the cliff face to, to Bran and most of their words are blown away by the wind so this section is rather fragmented. <clears throat> These are the manners of kings, to raise a shield, point up on the mainmast as a sign you come in peace, to stay on the ship to last ashore, to send out messengers to the sandy threshold, where they must shout politely up the cliff face, 
to the one who seems carved out of it to this effect. All the world acknowledges the of her grace, his grace's sister, who no woman, the whiteness of her gentle, to which of our two peoples strengthened these unworthy gifts. Well, you get the gist anyway. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They come ashore all day, making a noise like, like language, laughing as if they want everyone to hear rucking up the beach with their footprints, humping nailed-up crates, trundling cartloads of clatter. Outside the town, a distant prospect of tent, the late sun embroidering its skirts, the lightning of cooking fires, nimbus of wood smoke. The strange king sits beside his host's knees and looks up into the tent's inverted abyss, reaching out for the cold hand of his one-hour's bride. Um, Mytholoc, of course, being a, being a, a medieval king warlord, has brought, brought his horses with him. Uh, and, uh, and somebody becomes aware of these horses and of this king and of these strange things going on. The tent, of course, is because, um, uh, as, as I said, Bran can't, can't be inside a house, so he has to have a tent to entertain, entertain his guest. Um, and the person who, who, who becomes aware of this, all, all this going on is... Um, uh, Bran's uh, half-brother, Evnashian, who is um, a kind of extraordinary portrait, I think, of a psychopath. He's just, just wonderfully... He could be straight out of a modern horror film. He's an amazing character. Um, what is a man without horses? He's brought his with him. At every stable they are toweled and burnished, honoured with the heap, he- heaped hay of the trough by their grooms from home, then left to their stiff-legged sleep. At night... The town is shrill with their troubled dreams as they breathe the smells of their quarters, recalling the pent-up days, the galloping sea. And someone who hears these newcomers calling across the darkness in their raw voices wonders why no one told him his country had changed. So Avnashian is is enraged, offended by the fact that he's not been consulted over this whole business of the marriage um, and he's going, going on to commit a, a, a terrible crime, which I won't, I, I won't do that bit. Um, those of you who know the story will be quite relieved I don't. Um, he is half a brother, which is no brother at all, a splinter in the flesh of the family. He is called also, and by the way, a man there's no space for in a Snowden of tent. And his swan of a sister, who seems to walk without moving her feet, nudged at times to right and left, by currents only she can feel, who shines with the weird light of a swan, smiles at him vaguely as if trying to place him to marry a foreign king and not ask his leave. And this is going to be the source of the, of the war that the remaining part of the, that tale is, it, it tells of. I'll move on now to the third branch of the Mabinogi. Um, and the main character in the third branch, or one of the main characters in the third branch, at any rate, is the, um, the son of the couple we saw earlier, um, Praderi, rather easier to pronounce than his father. Um, and uh, this scene is going, it, it takes, takes place actually on the same um, hill that, that I described earlier, the Gorseth Arbeth, 
um, where whenever you sit there, you see something wonderful or something, something amazing happens. And um, so Bruderi is now sitting on this hill. It's, he, he's, he's come through the war in Ireland, which was in the second branch, and he's come back to his, to his um, kingdom in West Wales, or princedom in West Wales. Um, and he's there with Rhiannon, the horsewoman we met earlier, who is his mother. Um, and uh, he's there also with his wife, Kigva, and, um, and Rhiannon is now married for a second time to um, uh, another of the warriors who, who fought in Ireland, who, uh, a man called Manawadan, who is uh, Pradevi's great friend. So they're basically, you don't need to know the complications really, but two, there are two couples. There are two couples and, they, and they're, they're, they're very happy together, sharing the kingdom or princedom between them in West Wales. And they um, go up on this hill to see a wonderful sight, and that's where all their adventures start. This is the hub, the green knoll in the midst of the green, where a prince sat and watched a woman riding. The court sits on the cushiony turf. The two lords and their ladies, their roost of nobles, all still, though their garments shiver in the wind. The landscape's hoarse silence in their ears, watching the dumb show of clouds, the fiddling cornfields. Then there's nothing to see but whiteness. A chilly linen of fog clings to their faces, and the air rings like a pan clanging on granite. So a fog has come down. Um, and that still happens where I live in West Wales. Uh, but not that this is a magical fog. They're limbless and bodiless. There is no beyond. They press against the clammy wall of the self that pulses in time to their breathing. The otherness of the world at last swept away. There is only you, as you have always known. And when a thinness insinuates, when space and color leak back, the brightness is sham. Two couples stand on the blowing tump, but where the nobles roosted is grass and thistles. No corn gilds the fields, no sheep mooch on the hillsides. An enemy enchanter has struck and removed everything, all, all, all of civilization, so there's nothing there except these two couples, their horses, their dogs, the house they live in, but everything else is gone, the, the, the sheep, the, the crops, the cows, um, all, all sign of habitation elsewhere. It's, I always think it's like a zombie apocalypse. It's a zombie apocalypse in, in, in medieval Welsh terms. All that we laid on the land, the long grasses we sowed for the goodness in the seeds, the animals that chewed the country into tameness, the dwellings of wood and stone, the fog has lifted. Only these four are left, and their four horses. They ride back through the unhedged acres in an unfamiliar dusk without smoke or lights. The hall's still there, a hulk, black on grey, bigger than they remembered. How did they live here, in this quarry of footsteps, this towering night? The memory of fire, a rose-grey tinge to the dark. It was never allowed to go out. Dig down through softs and cools, past flaky charcoals, to where a red star's dying. Coax it with splinters, build it a shelter out of twigs and pine cones. It trembles in the black, starts to shrink. Feed it whatever stars eat, till it flares yellow. Coss it that larval flame as it grows and breeds hungry butterflies that twitch on the logs till you can see each other in your tent of light. There is a larder all round them, the dead animals they were to feast on, gold eyes in the firelight, a table laden with butchered limbs and fuzzy hummocks of fur, 
blotted with bloodstains. From now on, they are living with the absent, the hundredweight of its appetite and its spidering shadows upflung on the walls. The women hack the fur from a hair till it's naked and gleaming, skewered on a sword. They season their loneliness with smoke and burnt meat. So they start to live successfully together, the four, the four of them, just doing all the work themselves, no servants anymore. Their world has been taken, but they still have their country. The men ride over sheepless hills with the dogs squirming and seething around the hoofs, and the deer sift through the trees as they did before. In the kitchen, the women manhandle pots that gong against the hard surfaces, always outnumbered by meat with its blood-rimmed eyes. In lonely moments, the air is as vast as the stillness of a church that sees and hears you. They don't fear the emptiness, but what might live there. They can survive on venison, salmon, and honey. They can brush their own horses, feed their own dogs. They know the old stories, the old songs. Each has another's body to feel for at night. They miss strangers, light through a half-open door, and people talking in a cottage who'll never know you were there, but who might be you. That feeling, just as you fall asleep, that your mind's plunging into a sea of sleepers. If there are still people left, they have to find them. Okay, I'll leave that story there and just do one more extract, which is from the fourth branch. And the fourth branch is about um, uh, a, a, um, a magician called Gwydion and his nephew. He brings up his nephew, and, um, and the nephew does not get on with Gwydion's sister, his, his own, own mother, um, who has cursed him three times. And, and the final curse is that he will never... No, no woman born on earth will, will be his wife. So Gwydion gets round this by creating a, a wife for him out of flowers. Um. <clears throat> Meadow sweet for sweetness with its smell of stale candy. Shriveled cream flowers they strew between bedsheets. Broom flowers for silken gaudiness. Oak catkins for their gentle tickling of the wind. I, who had sculpted mushrooms, woven seaweed and whisked a fleet from feathers and spray, could conjure what he needed from these fripperies. The air was golden with her pollen, as I heaped her on the bed in frilly armfuls, till a million petals fused into a woman. So um, the, the, wife, the, 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 the young man's wife, Clay, Clay is the name of the young man, his wife has been created for him out of flowers, um, but a, a wife out of flowers, is, you know, it must be a rather strange experience to be a, be a woman and know you were a lot of flowers before you were a woman. And, uh, and I kind of imagine what, <laughs> what it was like to be, uh, to, to be a woman who was once flowers. <clears throat> Did she remember as she sat at her tapestry, stitching its marginalia of flowers, or when she squeezed in between her sheets and a scent of meadowsweet haunted the darkness? or when she rode over her husband's acres just after the oak leaves had opened, bright with the greeny yellow of hearts of lettuce. A time when she dangled in the wind, when her insides were offered to a nuzzling bee, when she was part of it all, when she was many. And she 
the, the marriage doesn't work out for one reason or another. And um, her husband leaves her alone and, and, uh, and she, a stranger comes hunt, hunting on her land and she's going to start an affair with him. She was the wife I had made for the man I had grown. He rode, ruled, hunted like any other lord, while she sowed herself into silence those chilly castle evenings when he was away. A strangled bleat of horns from the distant woods. Knowing it wasn't him, she listened, willing it back when it, when it died all one afternoon till she felt the hoofbeats in her chest. At last the yapping went up for a sunset kill and she called a servant to ride and see who was there. And now we move to the viewpoint of the man who was there, a man called Gronu, who's just, just, just been hunting on, the, on this land and gets called up to, to see this, the, the woman who owns the, the castle, the local castle. At the red hour, when he was elbow deep in entrails, a man came to lead him out of the forest, and he, stupid with blood and riding, thought he had done something wrong when he hadn't yet. A fire, yellow as broom, was lit in the hall. The water they brought him to wash in had flowers floating in it and a stale, sweet smell. But that was all round him, as if the air had been shut in a clothes chest full of potpourri. The lady who greeted him was honeyed with it. And I'll just read the, one more section, one more, one more of, the, of these very short mini-sections um, in which we see Grono wondering what's, what's going to happen and uh, where this affair is going to lead. As he was following her up the shadowy stairs, he tried to remember the moment he'd known. Was there a hastily swallowed laugh, a gaze she couldn't put down? He could find nothing. No brink he'd stepped over into dizziness, unless the whole evening was a brink. He couldn't picture her face. Only the candles burning all round them, their beeswax smell mingling with her candy scent. They were lovers then, and they would be lovers soon, whoever she was. Thank you very much. That was, that was wonderful. I'm looking forward to reading that whole. It's wonderful to be here in Ledbury. This is my, my first visit. Um, just the beautiful weather, and it's so picturesque and lovely. Um, I do live in Athens, um, Greece. I, I always say that. In, I realize that in the U.K. it's Athens, you know. But in America, there's an Athens, Ohio, and an Athens, Georgia. <laughs> you kind of have to specify. Um, but particularly grateful to be here. Um, Athens right now, I think, has having temperatures of 43 degrees and a garbage strike. So, <laughs> um, so I think this is titled uh, the, the talk, something trans rhyming the classics. Um, and I have done a lot of classical translation um, into rhyme. As many of you will know, um, ancient... Latin and Greek poems don't rhyme, so it is kind of an odd thing to do in English. But um, I suppose my main uh, rationale is rhyme is just that element of English which says this is a poem. 
Um, meter also says that, but people don't always hear the meter. <laughs> and I feel like rhyme is just right out there. And I tend to translate, it turns out, um, didactic poems by curmudgeonly dead white misogynists. Um, maybe I'm reborn from one of them, but um, as perhaps punishment. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, so one, Lucretius is a Roman poet um, from around first century BC. We know nothing about him at all, who left us this wonderful around 7,000 line epic poem about the atomic theory and about Epicureanism. It's in some ways very, very modern. Um, but the really strange thing about the poem is in, even in first century BC Rome, you did not do philosophy in verse. Even then, that was just weird. And um, on top of that, Epicurus, who is the person that models this philosophy, who is um, basically like the, the founding father, um, Epicurus actually says that poetry is bad. <laughs> so the whole thing is just such a weird, eccentric um, operation. And I did feel that I wanted to get across the weirdness of writing about science and poetry, and it seemed like only rhyme in, in English would completely put that forward. Um, if you want to hear a little bit of what it sounds like in the Latin, and you can hear that it does sound like poetry. I ne adum genetrix hominum di womque volupta salma venus caeli sub terla bentia signa quae marina vegarum quae terras frugiferentes con celebras per te quoniam genesum nonimantum concipitur visit quexortum luminosolus. Te, dea te, fugiunt venti, te, nubila caeli, ad ventumque tuum tibi suavi, dae dilatellus, sumitit flores tibi rident, ae quoraponti placatumque nitet diffuso lumine caelum. Um, so it's very clear in the Latin that this is poetry, and this is the wonderful opening, um, which is, a, again, the Epicureans... It's not exactly that they're atheists. They say maybe there are gods, but they just don't bother about us and don't care. <laughs> not exactly atheists. But the whole opening is this hymn to spring and to Venus, and basically it's a hymn to sexual reproduction, which is very important if you're in this kind of Darwinian um, element. It, there is almost a discussion of evolution. Um, I won't really read that sort of sexy opening, um, uh, but what I, w I thought I would do is uh, read a rant against romantic love. So um, Epicureans, basically, they believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the most, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson just gets that triad right out of the Epicureans. Um, it is a very subversive idea for ancient Rome that the first ideal, the best good is pleasure, not duty, pleasure. This is, you know... Even now, I think it would be problematic for lots and lots of people. Um, but it turns out that pleasure in ancient times really is not feeling pain. It's not quite our sense of pleasure. It's avoiding pain. So um, two glasses of wine, good. Um, you know, six glasses of wine, hangover. So you, you want to enjoy things in moderation. And um, sex is fine. Romantic love is going to make you miserable. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm going to read a, a kind of rant against 
sexual love. And he is, um, Lucretius is writing at exactly the same time as Catullus, who is tortured about romantic love. And I'm pretty sure they, their paths crossed or they knew people who knew people. This is almost like aimed at Catullus. Um, so I'll go just start mid-rant. And I've, it's okay, it's in dactylic hexameter, unrhymed. I have put it into rhyming 14 so why not? Add this. Lovers fritter away their strength, worn out in thrall. This also. One lives ever at another's beck and call. They grow slack in their duties, good name stumbles and malingers. Wealth turned to Babylonian perfume slips through the fingers. And he's going to name a lot of place names, and it's basically like brands, you know, like Louis Vuitton or whatever. But you can bet that she's well-heeled in shoes from Sicyon, and those are genuine emeralds, the rocks that she's got on. The wine-dark sheets from rough and constant use upon the bed and drinking up the sweat of Venus are worn down to the thread. The father's hard-earned fortune turns to tiaras for her hair, a linden silks, diaphanous gowns from coasts for her to wear. He shells out for fantastic feasts with all the trimmings, fine linen, music, perfume, garlands, wreaths, free-flowing wine, but in vain, since in the very fountain of delights there rises something of bitterness that chokes even among the roses. Perhaps it's that remorse growing at the conscience taunts the lover he's thrown his life away in sloth among low haunts, or else his darling wings a two-edged word at him, a dart that smolders like a fire and rankles in the love-struck heart, or else he thinks her roving eye too freely wanders after another and imagines in her face a trace of laughter. And these are just the problems of a love that's going well. Imagine a love that's crossed and doesn't have a chance in hell. Even with your eyes shut, you can grasp that the amount of troubles in unhappy love are more than you can count. Best to keep eyes open, as I said. Don't take the bait. It's easier to avoid the toils of love than extricate yourself once you are caught fast in the nets and to break free from the strong knots of Venus. Yet you're still able to flee the danger, even if you're tangled up snared in the gin, so long as you don't stand in your own way and don't begin to overlook all shortcomings in body and in mind of the woman you lust after. For desire makes men blind, and generally they overlook their girlfriend's faults and bless these women with fine qualities they don't, in fact, possess. That's how it comes that we see girls, malformed in many ways and hideous, are petted darlings, objects of high praise. Indeed, one lover often urges another he would mock, Venus has it out for you. Your love's a laughingstock. Poor fool, that his delusions worse would come as quite a shock. And now there's this little passage that's been translated many times and is um, in many other authors. Um, so this is all, all the problems of the various girls. The black girl is brown sugar. A slob that doesn't bathe or clean is a natural beauty. Athena, if her eyes are grayish-green, a stringy bean pulls a gazelle. A midget is a sprite, cute as a button. She's a knockout if she's giant's height. The speech-impaired has a charming lisp. If she can't tuck at all, she's shy. The sharp-tongued shrew is spunky, a little fireball. If she's too skin and bones to live, she's a slip of a girl. If she is sickly, she's just delicate, though half-dead from TB. Obese with massive breasts, a goddess of fertility. Snub-nosed is pert, fat lips are pouts begging to be kissed, and other delusions of this kind, too numerous to list. 
Yet even if her face has every beauty you could name and she pours out the power of Venus from her entire frame, the truth is there are other fish in the sea. <laughs> so that's kind of like the anti-love poem. Um, I'll read a few uh, poems that aren't necessarily translations. Um, although actually this one is, come to think of it. Um, so this is in a section of poems, and it's a version of Kavafi's The City. I, it's not really close enough, I think, to call it a translation. I say after Kavafi, so I can get away with what I want. You said, I'll go to another land. I'll go to another sea. I'll find another city, one that is better than this. Here my every effort is sentenced to fruitlessness, and here my heart's entombed as if it were a cadaver. How long will my mind loiter in this wasteland? For wherever I turn my eyes here, whatever I look upon, I see the black wreckage of my life. All the gone years are frittered away, destroyed, wasted, utterly. But you will find no other lands, no other seas discovered. This city will pursue you, the same streets you will follow. You will grow old among the neighborhoods that you know now. Among the same houses, you will turn gray. Forever you are coming to this city. Do not expect another. For you, there is no ship. There is no road for you. For as you've wrecked your life in this small corner, so too you have wrecked your life the whole world over. That poem has, I, I've come to feel living in Athens where um, the refugee crisis is very inevident and um, I actually spend a lot of time talking to people from these Levantine places and sort of feeling I'm in the middle of a Kavafi poem and talking to a young man from Syria with an interrupted university degree, you know, say, and he just said to me, he said, I, I want to go to another land. And I just thought, you know, we're, we're in a Kavafi poem. Um, so that's a very strange feeling. Um, my patient children are at the event, so I, I can embarrass them with some poems. See if they're listening. Sea Girls for Jason. Not gulls, girls. You frown and you insist. Between two languages, you work at words, R's and L's. It's hard to get them right. We watch the heavens flotsam, garbage white above the island dump just out of sight. Dirty, common, greedy, only birds. Okay, I acquiesce, too tired to banter. Somehow they're not the same, though. See, they rise as though we glimpse them through a torn disguise, spellbound maidens, wild in flight, forsaken, some metamorphosis that Ovid missed, with their pale breasts, their almost human cries. So maybe it is I who am mistaken, but you have changed them. You are the enchanter. And I think also just living in Greece and living in another language, um, I live a life in translation all of the time. I mean, everything is a, in a state of being between languages. And um, it's been fascinating to watch my children who are bilingual and, you know, have the language acquisition, but um, with the two languages. I mean, now my daughter's very sweet, and she will sometimes say, Mommy, your Greek is getting better. <laughs> Um, but I think there is this feeling that uh, um, I'm always balancing language. 
This is a villanelle, which um, is, you'll hear some repeated lines. Um, and I've just stolen one of the lines. It's just a proverb, a Greek proverb. And the proverb is, ou then moni mocharon tu prosorinu, after a Greek proverb. But you'll, you'll figure out which one is that line. I don't think I have to translate it. We're here for the time being, I answer to the query. Just for a couple of years, we said, a dozen years back, nothing is more permanent than the temporary. We dine sitting on folding chairs. They were cheap but cheery. We've taped the broken window pane, TV still out of whack. We're here for the time being, I answer to the query. When we cross the water, we only brought what we could carry, but there are always boxes that you never do unpack. Nothing is more permanent than the temporary. Sometimes when I'm feeling weepy, you propose a theory. Nostalgia and tear gas have the same acrid smack. We're here for the time being, I answer to the query. We stash bones in the closet when we don't have time to bury. Stuff receipts and envelopes, file papers in a stack. Nothing is more permanent than the temporary. Twelve years now, and we're still eating off the ordinary. We left our wedding china behind, afraid that it might crack. We're here for the time being, we answer to the query, but nothing is more permanent than the temporary. Um, again, this is, it's a translation, but it's so far from the original that I just have to say after Seferis. <laughs> the companions of Odysseus in Hades. Um, and it's a poem, actually, I never really understood in Greek until I translated it, um, because I finally found a letter from Seferis explaining the line that I didn't understand. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I get that now. Um, the companions of Odysseus in Hades. Um, uh, maybe I should open a parenthesis, as the Greeks say. Um, so Odysseus is a really important figure in Seferis, and he's a very negative figure generally in modern Greek poetry. He's not this positive figure that you get in Homer. He's, he's the, the ship of state where, you know, he's the only one who makes it, and everyone who follows him drowns. <laughs> um, so this is the companions. Since we still had a little of the rusk left, what fools to eat against the rules, the sun's slow-moving cattle, each ox huge as a tank, a wall you'd have to siege for 40 years to reach a star, a hero's rank. We starved on the back of the earth, but when we'd stuffed ourselves, we tumbled to these delves, numbskulls fed up with dearth. This is a, after a famous Horace poem, Ehu Fugakes Postume Postume. You'll, I think, recognize it. But uh, again, I just I had so much sort of fun with it that I, I just put after Horace, so I'm not, I'm not responsible for, for any minor translation points. And I've just called it Ehu, which is Latin for alas. Ehu, after Horace. Ah, posthumous, arrived too late. The years are running out. Old age and death don't hesitate because you are devout. Though altars groan with sacrifice, still you cannot deliver yourself from Pluto's heart of ice or from the dismal river where everyone must board the skiff and everyone must cross, whether some poor working stiff or well-rewarded boss. In vain, we run away from battle. 
In vain avoid the sea, the treacherous sea, and autumn's rattle. The wind won't let us be. Someday you must lay eyes upon the black, meandering waters, and Sisyphus, who's never done, and Danis's wicked daughters, and leave behind earth, house, and wife, who only sought to please, and all you planted in this life, save gloomy cypress trees. Someday a more entitled heir will broach your cellar door and swill the costly wine you spare and stain your marble floor. And again, um, it's been very intense these past few years in Greece with um, all of these displaced peoples um, who, again, are going along the same routes as Bronze Age. I mean, you know, Hesiod comes over from Asia Minor just south of Lesbos, where his father does as an economic migrant. Um, so these populations have been moving in these patterns. Um, you sort of suddenly realize in Greece for millennia, it's actually, um, it's never really stopped. Um, so this poem is entitled Empathy. My love, I'm grateful tonight. Our listing bed isn't a raft, precariously adrift, as we dodge the Coast Guard light and clasp hold of a girl and a boy. I'm glad we didn't wake our kids in the thin hours to take not a thing, not a favorite toy, and didn't hand over our cash to one of the smuggling rackets, that we didn't buy cheap, cheap life jackets, no better than bright orange trash and less buoyant. I'm glad that the dark above us is not deeply twinned beneath us and moiled with wind, and we don't scan the sky for a mark, any mark that demarcates a shore as the dinghy starts taking on water. I'm glad that our six-year-old daughter who can't swim is a foot off the floor in the bottom bunk and our son with his broken arms high and dry, that the ceiling is not seeping sky with our journey but hardly begun. Empathy isn't generous, it's selfish. It's not being nice to say I would pay any price not to be those who die to be us. Um, I'm going to read a found poem. Again, one of the things, as poets, I think um, it, it's partly a way of how you read. Um, I think my theory is that poets are more literal-minded than other people, not less. You know, you're suddenly looking at, it's almost a kind of um, metaphorical dyslexia or something. You, you, sometimes I will be looking at a word and I'll think, what an amazing word. It just seems like a really archaic word out of hardy two. Or, or two. <laughs> um, so one of the things with the crisis is just my Facebook feed would fill up with these lists of things that were needed in the port of Piraeus. And because I guess I'm a poet, they just read like poems. You could tell what was happening at the port and what was needed simply by the lists, which would change. You know, at first it was sleeping bags and then, you know, it's um, formula for newborns or, you know, things for illness. Um, so one of the things that came over the transom was this, um, and fits in with this translation um, idea. It was just an appendix, useful phrases in Arabic, Farsi, Dari, and Greek, um, found poem from the Guide to Volunteering in Athens as updated for March 17th, 2016, which is right before the borders closed very hard and people just got stuck in Greece. Um, I, I've done very little alteration with this at all, except maybe just a tiny bit for length. So these are phrases, and then it would give the Arabic and the Farsi. 
that might be useful to you if you're a volunteer. Welcome to Greece. Thank God for your safe arrival. Greeting after trip. Hello. Good morning. Good evening. Good night. Thank you. You're welcome. Please. I don't understand. I don't speak Arabic, Farsi. Slowly. Come here. You're safe. Are you wet, cold? Yes. No. My name is... What is your name? He, she, it is. We, they are. God is with the patient. We'll make people laugh. Give yourself a break. Comforting words. Free, no charge. Refugee, volunteer, foreigner, friend. I am hungry, thirsty, food, water. Does it hurt? Sick, pregnant, mother, father, brother, sister, child, family. What country is your family from? Pharmacy, medicine, hospital, doctor, tent. Sorry, it has run out. We do not have it now. New shoes only if yours are broken. Wait here, please. I will return soon. Follow me. Come with me. Come back in 5, 15, 45 minutes, one hour, quarter, half hour, half day, today, tomorrow, yesterday. How many people? Sorry. Stay calm. One line, please. Next person. And I'll conclude since I read a, a poem for my son. For a, po a poem for Atalanta. For Atalanta. Your name is long and difficult. I know. So many people whom we didn't ask have told us so and taken us to task. You too perhaps will wonder as you grow and blame us with the venom of 13 for ruining your life, using our own love against us keen as a double-bladed knife. Already I can picture the whole scene. How will we answer you? Yes, you were in a hurry to arrive, as if it were a race to be alive. We weighed the syllables, and they rang true. And we were hoping, too, you'd come to like the stories of princesses who weren't set on shelves like China figurines, not allegories, but girls whose glories included rescuing themselves, slaying their own monsters, running free but not running away. It might be rough, singled out for singularity, tough. Beauty will be of some help, you'll see. But it is not enough to be nimble, brave, or fleet, oh, apple of my eye. The world will drop many gilded baubles at your feet to break your stride. Don't look down. Don't stoop to scoop them up. Don't stop. 